0: Well, in case you hadn't noticed, I'm not Phil, and uh, I'm very happy to be able to speak with you this morning. Um, Phil is in New York with Grace, visiting a church. Phil's been on study leave a little bit during the summer, and so he's given the elders, the ruling elders, a chance to bring God's word. And we've been studying in the book of Job, and I'm very excited that I get to talk about Job's friends today, because I really enjoy Bible trivia. I really enjoy Just little quirky things about the Bible, and we actually get to see one of Job's friends who is, I don't know if you know this, the second shortest man in the Bible. Did you know that? It's not Zacchaeus who's the shortest man, or, you know, we think of him as the shortest man. The third shortest man in the Bible, obviously, is Nehemiah. (laughs) The second shortest man is Bildad the Shuhite, he's about this big. But of course, the shortest man in the Bible is Peter. Most people don't know that because he could sleep on his watch. Okay. All right. I got that out of the way. And so uh, let's, let's start here. Pet peeves. Do you have any pet peeves? Maybe dad jokes are one of your pet peeves. I have a lot of pet peeves, but no pets. Some uh, common pet peeves are chewing with your mouth open clipping your nails the sound of clipping nails i had a coworker who would clip their nails incessantly at their desk all the time and i i couldn't see it but i could hear it you just you knew that it was happening across the room some people don't like it when you op- uh, leave the toilet seat up my personal pet peeve is driving when people drive in the left hand lane going the speed limit or less this is just a little psa since i have the platform you're not allowed to drive in the left lane unless you are passing. On 55, if you are going 55, you should not be in the left lane. That's a personal pet peeve of mine. Amen. amen. Thank you. I can get an name already. But I think one, a universal pet peeve that we all have is the I told you so. Everybody hates that. They have that pet peeve. Everybody hates to hear the I told you so. I hate to hear the I told you so. In fact, I would rather lose an entire relationship with somebody than hear an I told you so. If you have an I told you so hanging over your head at work, sorry, I got to quit. I'm not going to hear the I told you so. I'll go live in the middle of nowhere. Of course, the, the, our parents all, oftentimes gave us the I told you so. Um, I mean, you, you kids, you know this. I mean, one of the famous ones is a uh, Christmas story, right? You'll shoot your eye out and it actually happened. He would rather lie to his mother than hear the, I told you so, making up some crazy story. But when my kids uh, are doing something I told them not to do, whether it's jumping off the couch or running with something when they shouldn't be, they're jumping off the couch. You tell them not to do it. And then all of a sudden you hear the thud. You come running into the room. What happened? Someone's crying. Are you okay? Everything all right? No broken bones? We don't have to go to the emergency room? Maybe bleeding a little bit, but it's nothing, nothing major? you know, I I told you, you're not supposed to do that. The I told you so is probably the worst thing that we could possibly hear, especially from our parents. And the only thing about the I told you so is as much as we hate getting an I told you so, we love to give the I told you so, right? We love giving the I told you so, even as a parent, sometimes even though you're trying to comfort your kid, but you, you have to slip it in there. You've got to turn the knife just a little bit. You can't let this, this situation go to waste where you're not uh, instructing them in some way. We're going to hear a little bit more about the I told you so, but if you would turn with me in your Bible to the book of Job, we're going to look at chapter 2. I know it says, I think, 16 on your, in the, the bulletin, but the title of my sermon this morning is The Comfort of Job's Friends. And we're going to see some friends that kind of gave Job and I told you so in a a manner of speaking. We're looking in the book of Job, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naathamite. They had made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word has been read. Please help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to see from this story what You would have for us this morning. Help us to be not miserable comforters, but comforters who love Your law, love Your Word, and are there to reconcile people to Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through the book of Job. I won't belabor the whole entire Job story. Job is suffering, and so his friends are coming to see him to give him some comfort. Now, Job's friends do play a major role in the book of Job. They often get overlooked or derided or put down, and they are kind of seen as the negative part of the story, but they do perform an important role, and it may not be quite what you expect. They get a really bad rap. So I think it would be a really good thing to look at some of the silver linings of Job's friends, seeing what they got right, seeing what they got wrong, And seeing what everyone, including Job, got wrong about the situation. So, those are gonna be my three points what Job's friends got right, what Job's friends got wrong, and what everyone got wrong about God. First, the good part what Job's friends get right. This is my first point. They wait and they honor Job. Now, we don't know much about Job's friends other than their names and their tribes, and we don't even really know that much about their tribes, but suffice suffice to say that they're close enough to Job to perform a service that a close friend or relative would perform, which is that they see Job in need, they see him down and out, and they come and they, they comfort him silently for seven days. And that is a really long time to be sitting with somebody without talking. Sometimes when you're comforting a friend in need, And you put your arm around them, and you don't know what to say, and even just five minutes can seem like an eternity. And and it is okay to just put your arm around someone, give them a hug, tell them that it's going to be okay. Job's friends sat with him for a full seven days while he grieved the loss of his wealth, the loss of his sons and daughters, and the loss of his own health here we see that Job's friends' initial acts of comfort were very admirable. First, the Bible says they made an appointment to come together. They showed up. Sometimes you just have to show up at someone's house because they won't answer your phone calls. They won't return your texts. Sometimes you just have to be there showing up at their house. And Job's friends did that. And when they saw Job, They were stunned. They didn't even recognize him. They tore their clothes. They threw dust in the air, which is kind of a symbolic uh, sign of grief. And they provided that ritual comfort to him. This is kind of the equivalent of showing up in black at a funeral, sending someone flowers. All these things, while some of them are formal, they, they do have great significance to people. And the next thing we read is that they shared in his suffering. Job's friends actually got down on the ground and laid down next to him. And they sat in silence next to him. They didn't book a hotel room in the Four Seasons and just check in on him and like take shifts. to check. Have you checked on on Job today? Yeah, he's, doing, he's not doing any better, but at least he's not doing worse. They were on the ground laying down, sharing in his suffering, giving him comfort. They sat with him in silence for seven days. And seven in the Bible is sort of a, uh, a number used for completion. So it wasn't that they were just there for a little bit, but they were there for the full type of grieving period. We can feel that they were there in solidarity with him. Solidarity with him. They were true friends. They weren't busybodies just showing up to hear the latest gossip. When they saw Job, they tore their clothes and they wept. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar obviously cared about Job and had a good enough relationship with him that they were in it for the long haul. So that's something that they got right. The second thing that they got right is Job's friends honored God's law. Job's friends, Job didn't really give his friends credit and doesn't honor them for accurately describing how the world works. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to chapter 4 of Job. And listen closely and hear for yourselves in ways that we actually agree with Job's friends. Here's some of the things that Job's friends got right. In chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Eliphaz correctly states that the the innocent prosper. We see this type of language similar to the books of Psalms and Proverbs, that if you are righteous, you will actually receive a blessing from the Lord, and if you are wicked, you will receive cursing. So Job 4, 7 and 8, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who harvest so trouble, harvest it. So here, Eliphaz correctly asserts that the innocent are protected by God. I mean, that sounds theologically correct to me, right? We we, we sang some of that type of thing in uh, Psalm 16 today. In chapter 20, Zophar correctly states that the wicked will suffer. Let's listen to chapter 20, verse 27. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, or the sinful man's iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. This is even apocalyptic language that kind of indicates final judgment. The earth will actually rise up against the person who does evil. And then Bildad continues talking about the wages of sin. He speaks up in Job chapter 8, verse 4. If your sons sinned against God, this is getting a little bit more personal now, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. And in verse 20, he says, Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity. In chapter 25, Bildad continues and says that a man cannot be righteous before God. Listen to verse 4. How then can man be right before God? How can he who was born of a woman be pure? That actually sounds like correct theology. Are you familiar with the phrase cage stage? Does anybody know that phrase? I got one, two, three, a couple people. So there's this this idea of being in the reformed cage stage. I don't know if you've heard of this, but meaning that you learn about reformed theology, you learn about theology, and you're really on fire about it. You got to tell everybody that you know about the theology that you've learned. And you're in a cage stage, meaning... You're not really helpful to anybody else. You're only fit to be put in a cage so you don't hurt other people and hurt yourself. That's the cage stage of Reformed Theology. Bildad is part of of those theology bros, giving everybody a lesson in theology in the tulip. No one can be righteous before God. He's got total depravity down pat. So Job's friends get a few things right. Firstly, they sit and wait for Job and provide him with real comfort for a while. And they also accurately say things about God that the innocent are blessed, that the wicked suffer, and that man cannot be righteous before God. Now, can I get an amen to the theology of Job's friends? Amen. So, but what theology are Job's friends describing? We might call this the quid pro quo theology of Deuteronomy. They are describing the Genesis theology of the covenant of works pagans would also agree that this is true that this is the way that the world works they would would say it in a different way they would say this is karma but Job's friends are missing some essential truths and so here's what they got wrong my second point this morning what Job's friends get wrong so they left out quite a bit of theology on the tulip but they're not wrong at least initially and here are some ways that they missed the mark Job's friends miss Job's innocence, relatively speaking, covenantally speaking. Since Job's suffering is so great, they automatically assume that Job is guilty of, of something. He's got to have done something wrong to warrant all this stuff from God. In Job 15.4, they say, Eliphaz says, you have no fear of God. And this is accurate in one sense because we know that everybody is sinful, And Eliphaz also says in chapter 22, you have exacted pledges. You have given no water to the weary. You have sent widows away empty. Zophar also doubts Job's innocence in chapter 11, challenging Job about the record of his life, saying that if Job will repent, he will have forgiveness. If you prepare your heart, if you stretch out your hands toward him, meaning God, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. While the Bible clearly states that there is none righteous, no not one, Job's friends miss the fact that Job was in fact covenantally righteous or innocent before God. How do we know that? Remember when God said to Satan in the first chapter, have you considered my servant Job? Job's friends were wrong about Job. The second thing that Job's friends miss was God's grace, or the other part of the law. Now, God's grace is not replacing the law, but it's the means by which the law is fulfilled. Let me say that again. God's God's grace does not replace the law, but it's the means by which the law is fulfilled. The The theology of Job's friends really does actually echo what we see a lot in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden, God gives Adam and Eve a covenant, a covenant of works, where he says, And God relates to people based upon their performance. He says, do good and obey. Do what I've commanded you and you will be blessed. And there's also sanctions. If you don't obey, you will receive the cursing that you deserve. This is the covenant of works. Put that in your little theology bin. And and Job's friends seemingly understood this type of economy or this type of reality. They understood that this is the way that the universe is supposed to, to function. If you do good things in this life, God will reward you with blessing. And if you do evil things, you should expect cursing. And that really hasn't even gone away. So you've heard the statement, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So therefore, if Job is in a place of suffering and he's in a place of being down and out, he's received not only regular trials and tribulations that we all go through, but he's received an apparent supernatural not ordinary suffering and affliction affliction by the hand of the lord what are job's friends supposed to infer from that other than that he is guilty in some way he must have job must have done something to earn god's ill favor and in this way job's things uh job's friends get things sort of right But isn't this the way that Satan traps us in our own weakness? Think of when we do something wrong. As Christians, as believers, we tend to think we do something wrong, we're afraid of the wrath of God. If I did something bad, God is going to smite me down because I did something. You're afraid to even get in the car and drive because you don't know what's going to happen. Or if you do something good, you do something to merit God's favor, or, or so you think, and nothing good happens to you. God, I've done all these great things. Where is your blessing? I've been obeying you, but, and I've been praying. I've been coming to church. I've been tithing. But all I, all I get from God is, is silence. But a half gospel is no gospel at all. The gospel means good news. And what Job's friends wasn't good news it was just the news. They merely described the mechanics of how the universe ought to work. And this was there, I told you so. One of my favorite phrases from the book of Job comes from chapter 16, verse 2. We can Let's turn there. Job 2, 16, or Job 16, verse 2, I'm sorry. Job chapter 16, verse 2. He he hears a bunch of nonsense from his friends, and then he says, "I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all." That almost sounds the way it's post put here. It's almost uh, Shakespearean to me. It almost sounds like it should be in Macbeth. "Miserable comforters, all you all, are you all?" Has Job forgotten about all the comfort that his friends gave him about being with him for seven days? I mean, they had the right, they put in the effort, they deposited into that relationship bank account, right? If anybody could give Job advice or, or uh, theological instruction, it's people that have been in your life. I mean, I don't know how many times uh, we see this in our own church, in our own lives, but if you want to be able to talk into somebody else's life, you can't just come in with like a Bible verse and tell them, well, you know, all things work together for good, you can't, you can't do that. You have, to have, you have to build up an account of investment into someone's life for them to be able to hear the first word from you, right? We know this uh, intuitively. And when somebody has invested in your life, you're willing to hear what they have to say. So Job has seemingly forgot about the comfort that his friends gave him sitting there for a whole week. And Job's response to his friends really succinctly sums up what all that there is to say about the covenant of works given our condition as sinful people under the curse. So even if we agree with Job's friends, we realize we have not done all the things that the, that he that they have talked about here. They we know internally that we're not right before God. So Job's friends missed half of the gospel. Moving on now to my third point, what everyone gets wrong. And now we come to the point where not only his friends, uh, we saw the friend, his friends got some things right, they got some things wrong. Here's what everything, including Job, gets wrong. Firstly, everyone misses God's covenantal plan. The thing that we often forget is that God's glory is our ultimate goal and our ultimate good. God's glory is our ultimate goal and our ultimate good. You will recall the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what we were made to do. The Bible says that he is the potter and we are the clay. Romans 9, Paul says, does not the potter have the right to make vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor? Sometimes Bad things happen to good people, covenantally, generally good people. And that's because God is interested in the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, Job gets close to understanding God's covenantal plan, closer to his friends, closer than his friends get. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job knew that he would be justified in the end, somehow. But he didn't know how to get there. He saw the math, the A equals B, B equals C, and he couldn't figure out where is the variable in here to make this turn out the way it should. And his friends didn't give him any good path to redemption. And Job didn't figure it out until the end where he finally realized that he was supposed to put his hand over his mouth and not speak about things that were too wonderful for him. Job's friends enticed him to fall into a covenant of works mentality, and he fell for it. We see Satan in this scene doing a bunch of bad stuff in in chapter 1, and then he kind of like leaves the scene, but he really really doesn't. He continues to work through the book, and in some ways even through his friends. Remember that Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness. Job Job has got three friends not saying there's a correlation but I just think it's interesting that, but Job's friends did do the work of Satan by by setting him up to compare himself to the righteous standards of God's law and instead of pushing Job into repentance instead of pushing Job into humility they wind up making him rely on his own good works and his own self-righteousness and his own good deeds and instead of encouraging him to rest upon the grace of God and to see the bigger picture they tempt him to stand on his own merits again and again job proclaims his innocence instead of trusting the saving power of god's mercy and grace towards him and isn't that we relate to how we relate to god we relate to god based on our own performance we think about, if something bad happened to somebody else, well, they must have done something wrong, or God would not have allowed that to happen in their lives. This is the pagan view of karma, again. And we all kind of believe in karma, right? In some way. We're not supposed to. This is, we're, this is an Eastern religion. We're not supposed to believe in karma. We kind of, we kind of do in the back of our minds, because it's kind of like the covenant of works, and we understand that this is how the world works. And so when we see something bad happen to somebody else, we instantly think that they must have done something wrong. And sometimes we, we enjoy that. Um, I relate a story that happened to me about a, couple, a couple months ago. I was driving back home from the shore with just my kids, all four, and Nikki was um, away with some friends. And uh, I was driving from where Tuckahoe is, I guess that's Route 40 back to 55, and it's a one-lane road for about 20 miles, 10, 20 miles. I don't, I don't know how long it is. So it's about 9.30 at night, it's dark. I got four kids in the car and somebody is riding my tail really hard. And I've already told you that I don't like when people are driving in the left lane, but this is only one lane. And I'm going, it's probably 50 mile an hour speed limit. I'm probably going like 55. It's a double yellow line. He's right on top of me. So I'm going, I'm, I'm doing normal here, but there's, there's nobody on the road. It's just me and this other guy. He finally pulls a, around me in the double line He blows past me, and I don't see him again for another two minutes, until I see lights up ahead in the darkness, flashing lights, and I see the same car pulled over on the side of the road. Oh, and I felt so good. (laughs) I loved it, because I was really angry that they were up my tail when I had four kids in the car. In fact, that road, that's happened to me twice, where I've gotten very angry, driving home when I've had my kids in my car. So he got what he deserved and I felt better about it um, unjustly. The the Germans have a word for delighting in the misfortune of someone else, schadenfreude. But this is uh, as funny as it may be, obviously not not good. I have to repent of that. (laughs) But it's fun. But in reality, the rain... Fall, he got instant karma. Uh, in reality, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. In the Gospels, we see Jesus indirectly correcting the faulty theology of Job's friends. People asked Jesus, there was a, a story in which um, a tower, a tower of Siloam fell on a bunch of people and killed them. And they go up to Jesus and said, Jesus, the people on whom the tower of Siloam fell, was it because they were worse sinners than anybody else? And he said, no. They didn't do anything else worse than anybody else. But unless you repent, something worse was going to happen to you. Job's friends did not have a category for God dealing with people other than the covenant of works. When Job considered his own life, how blameless he was, he could not understand why these things were happening to him. He was relatively humble in a lot of ways, and he had an accurate assessment of his life. He knew that he was innocent. And up until the sins of the tongue that he committed and not being humble, and he was blameless before God. So he knew that he didn't do anything especially wrong to warrant additional punishment from God. He lived a holy life, and chapter 1 of the book meticulously lays out how righteous Job was. In fact, he went above and beyond what was required of him. Chapter 1 says that he was concerned about the potential sins of his sons and daughters when they had their feast days. He would sacrifice for them on their behalf. Now, Jesus' words that I just mentioned provide us comfort in a way that Job's friends did not and could not. They were preaching to him a sermon, and it was the law without grace attached to it. And Many times we forget about the grace part we want to go back to the old covenant of works. Job's friends didn't have a supernatural view. They didn't have a higher view that God is doing something for his own good, working outside the natural order of the world by using this trial to glorify himself. Job's friends saw the world as kind of a computer program. Garbage in, garbage out. A robotic system of strict justice. Which kind of does have merit to it. We did read Bible verses that make sense to us theologically. So it makes sense from one perspective, but it is actually lacking the divine point of view. And without considering God's grace, Job feels disillusioned. He ends up being disillusioned. And here's one thing that nobody thought of except for God that Job provides for the sins of his friends by sacrificing. God is Job's champion. Let's turn to the last chapter in Job, chapter 42, and we'll see how Job is redeemed because of a sacrifice, and Job's friends are redeemed as well. Job 42, starting in verse, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Which is funny because Job is also rebuked. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have, and he repeats himself, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So... Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And verse 10 is very interesting. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. We really need to look at Job as an apostle. The book of Job, the story of Job, as an implied gospel story. We have a man that was just. He fell into sin and unbelief, questioning God and leaning on his own righteousness. And when God comes on the scene, he takes control, puts everyone in their place. And God is especially angry with Job's friends for their sin against God. But once Job atones for the sins of his friends, they are restored. Remember, Job was so righteous that he caused God to say, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So that when Job responds to his friends, he's actually right. And even though Job's friends do contain the, the advice and the wisdom that they have do contain some truth, they're ultimately not correct And at one point, Job does say to his friends, if I I was in your place, I could make the same accusations. I could make the same assumptions that you have about my sin. I know that the things that you're telling me are true. I understand them to be right. If someone is good, if someone obeys God's law, if someone does the things they're supposed to do, you're right. People will receive oftentimes blessing from the Lord and cursing if they disobey. So at at some point, Job really is convinced of the theology of his friends. But Job's friends are actually playing devil's advocate. Are you familiar with the idea of devil's advocate? Taking the side, the anti-side, in order to prove a point or to look at something from a different perspective. And in my opinion, Job's friends are playing devil's advocate for real. They're taking the side of Satan who said, because, what, because you've blessed Job, he, he loves you, he serves you. This is the I, big I told you so in this story. When Satan comes and accuses us and reminds us that we have problems, that we have sin, what do we do? Doesn't Satan remind us that we can never be right with God? We've done something wrong. It's, it's so heinous. It's so, so evil. It's so terrible. Even if we haven't done it, we've thought about it. And Jesus says, if you've thought about it, then it's just as good as doing it in your heart. So Satan comes to us and he says, the trouble and trial that you're facing, you're receiving this from the Lord. And it's evil from the hand of the Lord. But Romans 8.1 says, those who are in Christ, for them there is no condemnation. So we're hearing in our ear ...about our sins, or our miserable comforter, Satan. And on the other hand, we have the Holy Spirit, who is the true comforter. We have Satan as our miserable comforter, which is really no comforter at all, like Job's friends, ...replaying to us all the ways in which we have sinned, all the ways that we have failed, ...reminding of the things that we have done wrong. On the cross, Jesus' accusers said, ...if you're the Son of God, come down here and save yourself. They have the same mindset as Job's friends... A true Messiah wouldn't be able to suffer that mocking. The true Savior wouldn't be up on the cross. Peter also had this kind of Job's friend's mindset when he drew his sword and cut off the servant's ear as the soldiers approached Jesus to arrest him. They couldn't square reality or what they were seeing with any other concept of God's grace or what God was doing in the world To provide a sacrifice and if we're honest with ourselves we haven't we haven't even been like job when we hear the things that job's friends said we can nod our heads yes job's friends are right but with an asterisk they weren't completely right they didn't tell the rest of the story and in fact they told the wrong story they left out god's grace and they didn't see that job was God's champion before the world. There's a song that I really like by the band Shane and Shane called Embracing Accusation. Anybody here like Shane and Shane? Really great band and a good song that I love to hear. And the song is called Embracing Accusation. And it's a song where it's a story of the, of the devil who is singing the song of the redeemed. And when you hear the song for the first time, It is a little bit jarring the way he he gives credit to the devil a little bit. He says that the devil says we are cursed, we are gone astray, and we cannot gain salvation based on our works. In the bridge of the song, he says he's right. Hallelujah, he's right. He's singing the song of the redeemed over me, that cursed is everyone who has gone astray and has not continued in the law and, and the verse says, or the, the song says, he's singing the first verse of the song conveniently over me. All the bad stuff that we heard about before, Job's friends, if you're righteous, things will go well with you. If you're wicked, you will suffer. But the song, I, I love the song. I get chills every time. I'm just thinking about it right now. He's forgotten the refrain of the song that Jesus saves first part of the song, Satan is right to accuse, but Jesus saves. So, how can we apply what we've heard this morning to our own lives? Number one, be a comforting friend, not a miserable comforter like Job's friends. Tell the whole truth about the gospel. It is still the case that the way to get to heaven. The way that we are justified before God is 100% total perfect obedience to the law of God. Did you know that? When someone says to you, how do I get to heaven? There's one way. Be perfect. 100%. Never sin one time. That is how you get to heaven. Period. In case that wasn't clear. That part of God's relationship with human beings has never, ever changed. So when someone says, how can you go to heaven? The legal, forensic evidence and the reason that we get to go to heaven is because 100% total obedience to God's law. And in that way, we definitely agree with Job's friends. We agree with those theology bros who are telling us what we should be doing. We We can be saved by obeying the law of God, but that is not where the gospel ends. That's not the good news. That's the news. That's the karma view. That's the covenant of works view. That, the good news of the gospel gets us back past the bare news of how the world works to the good news of the gospel that Jesus saves. Amen? The second way we can learn to see through the accusations of the enemy, the second way we can apply this to our lives is to Learn to see through the accusations of the enemy and rest in the sovereign plan of God's grace. Well, that's a mouthful. I should have shortened that. See through the accusations of the enemy. Know who's talking to you. Paul says that um, the sufferings that we go through right now are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed in Jesus Christ. So even though Job is going through trials, even though we're going through trials, even though we have friends on this side telling us that we're getting what we deserve, even if it's not our actual friends, but it's our internal miserable comforter saying all these things to us, we got to see through that to the second verse, to the refrain that Jesus saves. Take your comfort in the fact that the gospel doesn't end at Job's friends. At the end of the story, we have Job sacrificing for his friends. There is an atonement. And so, when we see the story of Job, we can agree with Job's friends. We can agree with their their assessment of the world. But chapter 42 has the atonement. It's the second verse of the song. be a good friend, tell the whole truth about the gospel, and learn to see past the accusations of the one who comes to steal and to kill and destroy, the one who pretends to be our friend, but is our archenemy, the devil and Satan. So this morning, I'm challenging you to take comfort in the fact that Jesus saves. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning and the story that it that plays out, even in unexpected ways. And thank you for showing us that this story of trial and temptation that Job experienced is not merely just, well, bad things happen and God has things in, under control. It's not just about that. We rest in the sovereign plan that you have laid out for us. We know that you're working things together for our good because we love you. We are called according to your purpose. Help us to rest in that. Help us to trust you. Help us to block out comfort that is not comforting at all. But to listen to the Holy Spirit who tells us we are loved, we are accepted because of what Christ has done On our behalf, allow us to rest in his grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue. Adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University, we'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.